Hi, this is Corey Olson, and welcome to Students of the Word. This podcast consists of recordings of the weekly Bible study I've started running in February of 2022. I'm doing close reading, uh, which means we're going very slowly, thinking really carefully about the words, how everything fits together, and then, of course, also thinking about what this means for us and what we do with it. Thanks for listening, and I pray that God will bless the reading of his word as we study together. Okay, in today's episode, we go to verse 8, where John begins his parallel structure going back to, just as he's talked about walking in darkness in 6 and then walking in light in verse 7, he goes back now to, uh, again, sort of a negative thing um, about deceiving ourselves, and then he's going to do another positive thing in 9. So we spend some time looking at verse 8 and especially looking at the parallels between verse 8 and verse 6. And this is uh, really challenging. Uh, It's... um, I think this will become clearer when we get to uh, verse 9, but uh, I found this a very, very difficult uh, session and was uh, happy for the help that I got and uh, looking forward to continuing in the next session to continue uh, the work I was doing in figuring this out. But uh, buckle up. This is a, 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 uh, an intellectually challenging uh, puzzle this week. Welcome back, everybody, to Students of the Word. This is session number nine, uh, and today we are going to dig into verse eight. As we move forward, we move into the third statement of the kind of parallel statements uh, that John's making. We're going to look a little bit at that larger pattern, and we're going to be focusing, of course, on verse eight and thinking about how it fits into the pattern that we've been seeing, especially in verses six and seven and then eight. Uh, coming along. So we've got a, a lot of kind of, well, not big picture, but kind of medium picture looking at at the paragraph and how the paragraph is structured as well, of course, as digging into verse eight itself. So lots to do, lots to talk about. Um, and I want to start off with a little bit of a recap uh, uh, as usual, just to make sure we're all kind of keeping uh, fresh in our minds. It's one of the challenges, one of the continual challenges of reading as closely as we're doing um, is that it's, it's, it's really easy to get kind of in the weeds and lose track of the big picture, right? Because what was for John, you know, just a a, a sentence or two ago uh, was for us in the study, like three or four studies ago. And in real world time, for those of you who are uh, participating live months ago, right? So it's really easy to kind of lose track uh, of the picture, which is actually you know, uh, easier to keep track of when you're uh, when you're kind of uh, uh, stepped back. So I want to keep kind of stepping back and um, uh, and 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 looking at that. But anyway, okay. So first, let's do our let's do our recap. Let's go into the text here. This is our verses one through four, in case we need them. All right. So here we are in the second paragraph of First John, and let's. Uh, I was going to read through verse eight again from the top of the paragraph here. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right. Okay, so that's where we're getting up to. We're uh, uh, back to um, back to the truth. We got uh, another lie and lying and truth pairing there uh, in verse eight, and we can see uh, some of the similarity of the structure both with verse six and verse seven, right as we go through. But last time, recap first before we look at the structure. Um, 
we've, we're focusing on, on verse 7, and there were several things that we were looking at. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Um, so one of the things that we were looking at, of course, was the overall if-then structure of the sentence, right? Which is really remarkable. And of course, it's not a full sentence, right? It's connected to verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we're looking at the if-then structure, right? Um, Because it's easy to sort of overlook or forget about that, right? If we walk in the light, then two things. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? And that's a pretty striking thing. And the point that one of the points that I was making from that, which I think connects directly back to verse six um, and to verse five, the sort of setup in verse five, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And we were talking about how at first that could seem like a threat, um, especially as it's kind of articulated then in verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And it's easy to kind of take that in a, 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 a threatening way. I was about to say a negative way, but a threatening way, right? In a threatening way. Like if you walk in darkness, you are not welcome in the presence of God, right? And I was talking last time about there's plenty of examples of that kind of thing, right? The Hebrew Bible certainly is full of that kind of an idea, right? About purity and cleanliness, right? And, uh, you know, you you can't just walk into the presence of God, right? Darkness is not welcome in the presence of God. You think of all the cleansing and all the purity language and all that stuff that we get, um, especially in the Hebrew Bible, though it's not unknown in the New Testament as well. Think of um, Ananias and Sapphira, in the book of Acts, right? Um, and the kind of parallel between them and Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, uh, that we get back in, when, when are they? Leviticus? Numbers? I forget which one they are. They're in which, which of the books of the Torah they're in. Um, but, um, but exactly, Serena, you could say, in a manner of speaking, one does not simply walk into the presence of God, right? Um, uh, that's one of the things, again, that's certainly, I think, a significant message uh, in the Hebrew Bible. But um, that's not, I think, what we see here, or rather, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not present here in any way, but we don't just, this is not just a threat. This is not a threat of rejection if we walk in darkness, right? If we walk in darkness, God is going to exclude us from his presence. What we see in verse seven, although again, that element is there, it transforms into a promise. If we walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? And uh, this reversal, uh, well, okay, reversal, maybe not quite the right word. Um, But again, like the Hebrew Bible focuses and focuses and focuses on if you are unclean, you should not come into the presence of God, right? Um, And then we get some hints of the fact that, you know what, Um, there is, grace is possible, right? Um, in Isaiah, Isaiah's vision, right? In Isaiah chapter six, his, you know, his vision, when he realizes, oh my goodness, I am unclean in the presence of God, I am going to get destroyed. And instead he is burned, right? And he thinks this is, this is, this is it for him, right? Um, but then instead he is cleansed, right? So we do get that moment of grace. And of course, 
even more, the whole, there's a sense in which Jesus turns the whole purity thing almost on its head in his miracles in the gospel, right? Um, the hidden going out and touching unclean people all the time, right? And what do we see in the gospel? What do we see when Jesus touches, when t- Jesus touches a leper, right? Uh, you know, it, he, that uncleanness is not, like the person is not destroyed. The um, It's not, you know, now God is going out and touching the, now, and he's making them clean, right? Um, there's no question of the uncleanness of people soiling Jesus. That's clearly how everyone else is thinking about like, why are you hanging out? Why are you touching those people? Why do you associate with those people? You are going to be made unclean by being in their presence, right? But of course, that's not how it works with Jesus, right? Instead, he goes into the presence of these people. He reaches out and physically touches these people and makes them clean, right? His his cleanness is the thing that's contagious, right? And that seemed to be the thing that's, you know, the, one of the things we were looking at with um, what John does in 1 John 7, 1 John 1, 7 here, right? If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ's son cleanses us from all sin. What happens when you bring darkness into the light? It's gone, right? The darkness evaporates. And so that parallel between uh, between entering the light and being cleansed is sort of the whole core structure. And again, we see the if-then statement. If you walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What do we have to do? So how can we walk in the, how do you walk in the darkness? Well, in order to walk in the darkness, you have to hide from God, right? Like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, right? You have to separate yourself from God because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if you're near God, you're not going to be in the darkness, right? You have to go out of your way to find darkness, right? When God is anywhere nearby. Um, But if we come out of that darkness, right? If we step out of that darkness and we talked last time about, um, you know, uh, the gospel of John, John chapter one, words about um, not wanting to be, you know, about resisting the light because our deeds are evil, right? Um, and uh, um, we see here a, the kind of true grace that is at the heart of that, or sort of the, the irony of grace, right? We don't want to expose the darkness in us, um, you know, the darkness of our sin to the light, because we're ashamed, right? We're ashamed and we want to hide it like Adam and Eve covering themselves, right? Um, But when we do bring it into the light, when we do bring our darkness into the light, what happens to it? It's gone. What, What can it do? It can't stay. You can't hold darkness in your hands when you're out in the sunlight. You just, it doesn't work. You can't. Um, um, So, um, yeah, anyway, so that was kind of the promise we were looking at in uh, verse seven, which I think is really, is really special. We did a, uh, a little side, um, little, little dog leg into Trinitarian stuff, uh, looking at if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And we were noticing that we have, just as in John chapter one, we can see, um, you know, the word was with God and the word was God. There seems to be a similar kind of structure here with in verse five, God is light. And then in verse seven, he himself is in the light, right? So God is light and God is in the light. 
and that was setting off my trinescence, right? Uh, 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 saying, okay, I think we're, I think we're, um, um, we're, we're doing some Trinitarian stuff here um, that he's talking about the father and the son. Of course, he's going to, he emphasizes the sonship of Jesus uh, right there in that same verse in chapter seven, the blood of Jesus, his son, right? Um, and so thinking about the father and the son, God is light and God himself is in the light. Um, both things are true at once, just as it's simultaneously true that the word is God and the word is with God. Um, anyway, so that's the parallel I was making there. Um, and, uh, and, the, and again, the way in which that makes the invitation to walk in the light so inclusive, walk in the light as he himself is in, is in the light, right? Um, Jesus isn't just light. He walked in the light. And so we're being invited to walk with him. Um, and that was kind of my answer. It wasn't a great answer. It wasn't a full answer in any case to the question of like, what does it mean to walk in the light? Well, I think that's our hint as to what it means to walk in the light. And that is to walk like Jesus walked, right? Because he himself was also in the light and has therefore at the very least given us an example of how to be in the light. But of course, we finally came around to the central point of that verse, which was having fellowship with one another as once again, just as he did in verse three, um, he kind of ambushes us with, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, like if you just cut that middle part, it would have seemed like none none of us would have noticed, right? None of us would have missed it. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin and everybody says amen, right? Except that's not what John does, right? In the middle of that, right? In the very heart of the verse, in pride of place, he puts, we have fellowship with one another. That's the first consequence of walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Um, and, uh, we're talking about the radical implications of that, that we are joined to our fellow believers. Absolutely. That the fellowship we have with God and the fellowship we have with one another are spoken of by John in equally logically inescapable terms. If you step out into the sun, you're in the light. Right? If you have fellowship with God, you were in the light that is inescapable. Equally inescapable, apparently, is our fellowship, same word as our relationship with God, right? Um, uh, our fellowship, our koinonia with one another, right? We are, uh, uh, that is as inevitable, as inescapable um, as being in the light when we are, when we have fellowship with God. And we talked a little bit about uh, what that means and how challenging uh, that kind of is. But let us now move forward into verse eight, because this picks up on things that we've been on the verges of talking about for a while. Hang on a second, looking at a couple uh, comments here. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, Randall's talking about, uh, talking to a Jewish friend of, uh, of his, we noticed how many things would cause ritual impurity, um, uh, so that many persons would have been temporarily excluded from temple worship on any given day for one reason or other. Um, and uh, Randall says, to me, this makes the cleansing under Christ more immediate and personal. Yeah, Randall, I agree. You know, the one thing I've been thinking about a lot myself, I've, I've been reading a lot of Old Testament lately. I've been doing a lot of study uh, in the Hebrew Bible. And um, 
one of the, there are kind of two things simultaneously, Randall, that that kind of makes me think, and again, in connection with the cleansing idea here of verse seven, right? Is that on the one hand, it really just does emphasize the grace, right? Um, what it means that the temple, and Randall, this for me has been like one of the big things as I've been thinking about through, you know, th- you know, working, you know, thinking through uh, the Hebrew Bible so much more. Um, and the more I've kind of immersed myself in it, the more I think about, the more I realize how significant the temple, I think I never understood what it meant that, you know, uh, when Paul just says like, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I always had a rather vague idea of that. I mean, it's, I, there was never, I don't think there was ever a time when that didn't seem like a big deal to me, but I didn't understand what a big deal it was for a Jewish dude to say that, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a really, really big deal. Um, and especially when you think about that, you know, think about the purity stuff, right? Um, it's not that God like is different. It's not that God does, doesn't care anymore about purity, right? That, that uh, now it's okay for us just to waltz into the presence of God and it's no big deal. It is a big deal, though the invitation is open and the cleansing is there, right? Um, uh, but, but I think it's also, it's also important for us to realize, again, this is where then, of course, you know where Paul takes all this stuff, right? To our sin, right? To our actions and why it's really important, um, uh, to keep the temple pure, right? Because uh, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you can see the kind of force that that would have had um, to, uh, uh, you know, to early believers a little closer to that kind of cultural concept uh, than most modern Christians are. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, um, Hega, you're right. Uh, when Jesus cleanses the unclean in the Gospels, uh, he brings them back into the community. So fellowship uh, seems to be a part of that as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, yes, yes. Um, it's easy to overlook that, I think, um, Hega, that, that, that element of it, right? Um, that is, I know, again, this is just my own background. Um, from my background, what I've always been, what, what my tradition has kind of caught, taught me to hear in those gospel scenes, right, is Jesus sort of reaching out on behalf, uh, like essentially to emphasize the forgiveness of sins, right? Um, that these people like the leper is being made right with God. Um, and his cleansing is sort of symbolic of the, you know, the, to, to, to kind of take the cleansing of the leper as a kind of parable for cleansing of the sinful heart of people, right? Um, and I, it works as a parable in that way. Don't get me wrong. Like, that absolutely works. Um, but it's not just that, right? Um, and again, if we're a little bit closer to those purity laws and understanding how that works and understanding the life um, that that leper was living. Um, yes, there's forgive. At the very least, it's a sort of an image, right? A sort of a parable, as they say, of uh, of you know, can be used as a parable uh, for forgiveness. Um, but it is more than that, right? Um, there is much more at stake than that, and there, it is about fellowship uh, in the end. Um, yeah, and praise. We do get sometimes we're explicitly. Uh, reminded of the, it, the the forgiveness of sins part you mean is explicit in the story of the crippled man what the guy who gets like lowered down from the through the roof and stuff yeah absolutely absolutely um though again you'll notice that in that story rather than everybody being like oh yeah right of course like naturally 
right? His sins are forgiven. That's what this is all about anyway, isn't it? Um, it's like a huge non sequitur. <laughs> Jesus talks about that, like a shocking non sequitur. Um, uh, but um, anyway, yeah, that's it's complicated again. And I'm not saying that, that, that obviously that's a really important, um, uh, that, that, that's a really important element, but there's more, right? There's more. And again, John is really emphasized on this question of our fellowship with one another as we uh, come back to multiple times here. Okay. All right. But off into verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay. We say that we have no sin. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, um, first of all, notice, notice the parallel structure here, right? This is the first time we're seeing this, but it won't be the last time that we're going to be seeing this kind of thing, right? He starts with God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. And then we get the negative statement, right? If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But positive statement, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sins. So if we, you know, don't do this or like, you know, so if the bad thing, right? If the negative thing, then this, if the positive thing, then this, right? But then he comes through a third time. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And we can immediately see the parallel to verse six, right? Once again, we have an, if we say, if we say this, we're deceiving ourselves. It's not the same word. Uh, The verb is not the same. So we had lie before. Uh, Where are we here? Verse six, right? Here we go. If we should say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, pseudometha right? That's not the same verb that we get in verse eight. If we should say, um, hang on, the say is the same? Um, yes. Yes. Ipomen. Um, okay. So that's the same word. So if we say, where are we? Sorry, verse seven is long. Okay. Uh, especially in an interlinear. If we should say that we have not sin we deceive ourselves. So that the word deceive, planomen, is a different verb, right? We've got lie and we've got deceive ourselves. And I'm suspecting, and our Greek scholars can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that um, pseudometha is an intransitive verb and planomen is a transitive verb, right? Um, that's my, that's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's what I'm picking up from this. You can tell me if I'm correct. That is to say, so a transitive verb, Um, An intransitive verb is a verb that does not take a direct object. And a transitive verb is one that does take a direct object. So again, it's the difference. So lie and deceive work that way in English, right? Um, You could, if you say, you know, you, you lie as in to tell a lie, you, there's, you can't give that word a direct object. It doesn't take a direct object. You know, you can't say like, I lie a noun, right? I, you know, I lie. It's, it's just, you either lie or you don't lie, right? Um, whereas deceive needs a direct object in order to make any sense, right? If you say, I deceive, you're like, you deceive whom? whom, whom, whom did you deceive, right? You have to deceive somebody, right? There needs an object uh, to, that, to that verb. Um, so that's my guess. 
Uh, and again, our Greek scholars can tell me if I'm right about Planomen and pseudo metha uh, there as to whether or not um, they're both first person plural. Um, but um, but yeah, yeah. So I that that seems to me the sense of the difference there. Now I don't know if there are any other subtleties of uh, usage in those verbs. I'd be interested to learn more about uh, lie and deceive there, planomen, uh, especially. Um, uh, yeah, so um, uh, we, will, um, we will see. Okay, hang on a second. Randall says, it looks like this verb, are you talking about planomen? Uh, can be either uh, transitive or intransitive. Okay, good. It may be different if it is active or middle voice. Okay, this is, uh, uh, this is active voice, if we deceive ourselves, present, indicative, active, first person plural. Okay, all right. Okay, so this can be transitive or intransitive. Okay, so that's interesting. How about the pseudometha verb? Can that be transitive and intransitive or just intransitive? Um, okay, so literally, planomen would mean to, to cause to wander. Okay. So if you use it in transit, if you use it without a direct object, it just means to go astray, right? To wander. Whereas when you use it transitively with a direct object, it means to cause that thing, that one, that person to go astray. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Ooh. Hey, I suggest that. Um, well, hang on a second. Wait a second. Okay. Um, right. So cause to wonder. That's really interesting. In fact, that's very interesting. So deceive, would it be, now tell me if I'm going too far here, because I don't know that word in Greek. Would it be too far to suggest that in the word planomen, therefore, he's picking up on the walking around metaphor that he's been using in verses six and seven, right? The uh, uh, perip- peripatomen, right? We should walk around. Um, uh, so that planomen, meaning to wander, to go astray, would be kind of linking into that metaphor, right? So he's not talking about walking anymore. We're not talking about walking in darkness or walking in light. That's not the language he's using here in verse eight. But it would be kind of cool if he were sort of conceptually linking it by shifting the word instead of using the word lie, right. Instead of using that same construction to use this other word that picks up on that. Right. It could be, uh, could it be translated as lead astray? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder that's what I, that's kind of what, cause that would be kind of fun. Wouldn't it praise if basically it kind of means like, if we should say that we do not have sin, we lead ourselves astray. Right. Um, which would be again, another, way of saying, well, you'd be saying something very similar, right? To the walking in the darkness, walking in the light. Um, right. Aiden says the dictionary I'm looking at literally has lead astray uh, as the definition of this, of this, of this verb. Right. So um, the translation deceive um, is essentially sort of interpreting that metaphor, right? Um, yeah. Hillary says another way to say it in English might be mislead. Right, to, to kind of get that leading astray element into the English word uh, directly. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, we mislead ourselves. We lead ourselves in the wrong direction. We, we, we cause ourselves to wander off, right, if we do that. 
Okay, that's really cool. I did not know that at all. Um, and but I would be so unsurprised. Again, this kind of density of interaction, okay, parallelism between verses and stuff, it would not surprise me at all. It do, does not surprise me at all to think that he's taking that walking around metaphor um, and using that as a kind of through line here, right? Um, as well as the general structure, right? Um, so again, back to the general structure. Um, if we say that we have no sin, what's the other side of the if clause here, right? Um, the first time, remember in verse six, the structure we were looking at in verse six, if we say and yet do this, if we say this and yet do this other thing, then we lie a description of that saying of the speaking and do not practice the truth that emphasis on practicing, right? So we got say, do, say, do as our, as the, the, the sort of compound structure there of verse six, which is the first half of the sentence, of course, because the whole thing's very complicated. Um, if we say this and yet do that, then our saying is a lie and our doing is not the truth. Right. Um, and now in verse eight, what do we have? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, this is one of those things which when you're reading, um, you know, say you're, um, you're on a, you know, epistle reading kick, right? You know, you're doing like some daily Bible reading. Maybe you're doing a, a read the Bible in a year plan or something like that. And if you're doing a read the Bible in a year plan, you're probably not spending more than like a day on First John, the entire book, right? So, you know, if you're in some kind of reading mode where you're cruising, you're reading at least one whole chapter at a time, maybe the entire book of First John at a time, right? If you're in that kind of a reading mode, and you get to verse eight, it's going to sound like the same thing, right? He just said, we lie and do not practice the truth. And now he's saying, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So that's basically the same thing, right? This is a, a repetition for emphasis. And on the one hand, uh, yeah, kind of is, right? Kind of is a, repeti- a, a repetition for emphasis. But of course, there is, that's not the same thing right? It's not the same thing to say we do not practice the truth and to say the truth is not in us, right? Um, what sounds, again, on a cursory reading, like just a, a mere restatement of the same thing, like what kind of is a restatement of the same thing, but we really need to think through exactly what that means, right? And exactly what those differences are. But anyway, before we do that, though, I want to I keep thinking about the overall structure here. Um, The thing that's interesting to me here is that the second half of verse eight follows that same kind of compound structure as verse six, right? Uh, Like we lie and do not practice it. If we say this and do this, then our saying is this and our doing is that, right? Uh, You know, we got the both halves of that. In verse eight, the second half seems to work that way, right? We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? That seems to work in that same way. But, um, But the first half, seems to break that if we say that we have no sin. It's just the saying, there's no doing, right? That's accompanying it. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, right? If we say this, but do that. We don't get a, if we say this, but do that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, cool. Well, everything I know it, people are, um, people are, are, are doing a lot of Greek dictionary work, which I really appreciate, by the way. Thank you guys very much for doing that. Um, yeah, I, hey, I, I agree with you. I, 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 it makes sense to me too, that it's consciously connected to the earlier walking. Um, I think I'm going to, um, you know, subject to possible future correction, I'm going to go ahead with the conclusion that he is continuing that metaphor um, in that deceiving ourselves which is we see notice it's buried even in this english translation i don't think do any of them do it hang on let's 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 look at verse eight let's see king james doesn't i know we got deceive ourselves here niv deceive ourselves nrsv deceive ourselves cev what can you give us here um fooling ourselves okay and then the message what again the message uh fooling ourselves yeah okay um, so yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, none of the translations we're looking at anywhere on that spectrum, you know, we're talking about the spectrum of, um, you know, more literal to more, uh, uh, interpretive, uh, translations, none of them, even the most literal ones, um, don't give us that. Um, Yeah. How cool is that? This is why interlinear translations are the coolest thing of all. Uh, and the best thing is to have uh, fellowship, to have koinonia with a bunch of people who also know Greek and can help us with that. So there we go. Um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a funny phrase. Bray says, my family uses the phrase, you lie and do not the truth as a meme for any lie. Uh, but it's really more complex than that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, uh, yes. Okay. Um, that's, that's fabulous. I love that. Anyway, I'm, I'm, but I'm going back to the internal structure of verse eight here. If we say that we have no sin, why do we only have the one thing in the first half of the verse? Um, what it seems like to me, again, when I look at verse six and verse eight together, um, verse eight is kind of, I don't know, cutting through it to some extent, right? If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, right? So if we say this and yet do that, those two things are awkward. So it's, he's introducing that opposition, right? Um, if we say we have no sin, here we're not saying something about our relationship with God, and yet our actions suggest different, right? Which is what we see in six. In eight, we just have we're, what we're saying about what we're talking about is not our relationship with God, it's about our actions themselves, right? If we say we have no sin. So, in a sense, the saying and the doing are combined in that one statement. Um, again, so verse eight, that's what I mean when I say it's kind of cutting through right? Um, it's one thing if we, if, we, if we say, if we make a claim about our relationship with God, which does not match our actions, then we lie and do not practice the truth, right? Um, but if we make this claim about our actions themselves, then we're leading ourselves astray. We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us, All right? Um, Interesting. Heya says her Norwegian translation has making ourselves go astray. So, hey, what you're trying to tell me is that the Norwegian translation is the best, which I can hear my Norwegian grandfather, you know, he would have said, obviously, 
right what else is to be expected that's <laughs> exactly what my norwegian grandfather would have said um uh yes yes no that that's cool that's really fun um uh but uh <laughs> okay anyway um we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us um so the negative right about the lying the positive about the walking in the light and the cleansing, and then back to negative with the deceiving ourselves, with the leading ourselves astray, right? Um, but hang on, I'm just, I'm stuck on the, not stuck on, I'm, I'm still on the leading ourselves astray for a second because notice how that develops. Now we're, we're not just carrying the walking metaphor through. He's now commenting on it directly. Um, it's, it now reads a little bit more clearly as like a commentary. Remember a question we had, Aiden, I think you were the first one who was asking this question, though it's, it's obviously a really important question that I think everybody should have. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, what does that mean, right? It's kind of vague advice, right? Walk in the light. Um, Walk in the light, my child, is a, a nice uh, benediction, perhaps, but not very practical as advice, right? Um, it would seem on its own, right? Um, but taking that, um, in at least this one thing, he says, if we say this thing, then we're leading ourselves astray. So here's how not to walk in the light, right? Um, or to say in another way, here is an example of what walk, walking in darkness looks like and how walking in darkness can happen. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. We're leading ourselves astray. We're walking off of the path, wandering off the path. And the truth is not in us. And the truth is not in us. Um, okay. Well, let me come down to if we say that we have no sin. I've been focusing on deceiving ourselves. And so I haven't yet really kind of dealt with saying that we have no sin. It's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. Um, First of all, notice that sin is a noun, right? Um, If we should say that we do not have sin, right? We have not sin. Um. It's not sin is a verb, right? It's not the same thing as saying if we say that we have not sinned, past tense, right? Sin is a noun. It's a thing, right? Which we have present tense. And if we say that we don't have it, right? That we are not currently in possession, present tense, have, of sin. If, if, we're say, if we say that sin is a thing that we are not currently in possession of, then we deceive ourselves. Hey, what can you guys tell me about the verb ekhomen, about the have verb? I'm characterizing that here as being in possession of something. Is that fair? Is that, is that, is that, is that sort of a normal good usage there? Um, yeah. Oh, hey, we're going to come back to the difference between practicing the truth and the truth being in us. Uh, but I want to, I want to, I want to sit here first because 
uh, we need to understand the kind of cause and the if then here, right? If we say this, then uh, we're leading ourselves astray. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, okay, great. Aiden says, ekin uh, um, is, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's the common verb for to have or to hold. Okay, good. Right, excellent. Okay, good. Just wanted to check myself, make sure that I'm understanding the context of that verb. Um, right, so we, we, we have it. We hold it. It is in our possession, right? Sin is in our possession. And that's a really cool observation, Devorah. Um, she's interested in the fact that it's a singular noun. Hamartian, right? Um, she says, well, in my circles, we tend to talk more about sins than sin, right? Um, I agree. That is interesting. I'm not 100% sure what I do with that, but I do think it's interesting. Um, that is, it doesn't seem to be about um, my, um, yeah, sin is definitely in the singular, Serena. You were, she was just noticing that same thing too. Yep. Um, uh, accusative feminine singular, right? Yeah, that's right. Accusative feminine singular. It's accusative, which means it's a, it's a direct object thing we have, right? Um, we have direct object sin. Um yeah, Randall, exactly. Hammertian, the singular sin is being used as an abstract noun here, right? In other words, it's we're not enumerating, right? Um, uh, it's not like count your many sins, <laughs> count them one by one here, right? It's about uh, an abstract thing, sin. Sin is a thing. Sin is a thing that we have, right? Um, sin is a thing that we have. Um, yeah, um, Hey is saying one of the definitions she has is a destructive evil power. Sure. Hey, which reminds me, uh, this is of course not Greek, but Hebrew, uh, but going back to the way that the word sin is used when we, um, is it the first time it's ever used in the Hebrew Bible with Cain, right? How sin is like, uh, uh, waiting to pounce on him. Right. When God warns him that uh, uh, that, you know, sin is sin is waiting and it's going to pounce on him like a, some kind of predator. Right. Um, that's that very first characterization of sin, I think. Um, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. Well, I don't want to get into a whole big, sorry, I probably shouldn't have brought that up because I don't want to get into a whole big word study of how the word sin is used in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, we don't, even here, we don't have time for that. That's a different kind of study uh, that um, I probably should resist the temptation to do. Um, but yeah, so uh, sin. Um, and I want to, um, Aiden, I think with sin, I definitely want to do an internal vocabulary deal with that and pay attention to how John uses the word hamartia, sin. Um, uh, by the way, English students out there, fun fact, this is the same word that gets translated tragic flaw um, in Shakespeare studies, right? All Shakespeare tragic heroes have a tragic flaw. Um, the word hemartia is the one, the word that John is using for sin here uh, is exactly the same Greek word that Aristotle used that um, Renaissance scholars translated tragic flaw and which English teachers still teach, though I think it's a horrible translation of the word hemartia. Um, yeah, exactly, Christopher, from Aristotle. Um, uh, the problem is in context, it's hard to understand exactly what 
Aristotle means when he says that each tragic hero has a hamartia. Um, it seems to me that it just means like each tragic hero screws things up at some point would be like my loose translation of that line of Aristotle. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. So, but same word, fun fact, same word, hamartia. Um, so, uh, uh, okay. Okay. Um, so let's, but as I say, let's, let's kind of hold. So for now, we'll just sort of think vaguely about sin. Notice it's singularness. That seems, I was going to say singularity, but that's quite a different thing though, isn't it? Um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's state of being singular um, does seem significant, right? We're not talking about, again, like a sort of a catalog of personal sins, like what sins have I committed today, but rather a state, an abstract state of sin in some sense, right? So if we say we don't have that, if we say we don't have sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. We're leading ourselves astray. Now, think about that in the context of verses six and seven, that walking around context, right? We had the two ideas before, walking in the light and walking in the darkness. If we walk in the darkness, we obviously we can't have fellowship with God because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship and we are cleansed, right? Um, if we say we don't have sin, we lead ourselves astray. So that leading astray, that deceiving ourselves seems to be almost um, like a, an action thing, right? We've got the state of walking in darkness and the state of walking in the light. Um, how do we get from one to the other? Well, this apparently is one way to get from walking in the light to walking in the darkness, right? I mean, it's what it means to be led astray, to wander off the path, right? So if you're walking in the light and you say you have no sin, you're leading yourself astray. You're going to wander off. And then presumably the next thing you know, you're going to be wandering. You're going to be walking in darkness, right? Because the truth is not in you. and we're back to the light and darkness, truth and lie, parallelism, right? If the truth is not in you, I'm guessing you're in the darkness in John's uh, imagery here, right? Um, so that seems to me to track, actually, that he is warning us this is a mechanism for going astray, for moving from light to darkness. Um, fascinating. And what is it? if we say that we have no sin. Now, you'll remember back in verse six, I was suggesting that I think that verse six is one of those verses uh, that intimidates Christians, many Christians. Um, and uh, intimidates is maybe a gentle word, freaks out, perhaps. Um, there are a lot of people who read verses in first John and say, uh, I have no idea what to do with this how I can do anything with this. I mean, if I understand walking in the darkness as committing any sins, right? Like, so one is tempted to say, doesn't it sound like John is saying, if you sin, then you're not a real believer. You don't have fellowship with God, right? You might tell yourself that you have fellowship with God, that you've been accepted, right? But uh, there's an easy test for this. Do you still sin? If yes, 
you're lying to yourself and to everybody else, right? Because true believers, if you've really achieved fellowship with God, then obviously you're not going to sin anymore. And so therefore, right? I mean, it's, it sounds that absolute. Verse six sounds that absolute. And it's hard um, not to kind of come away with it thinking, well, shoot, what on earth is supposed to happen then, right? God is in light and in him is no darkness at all. There's no compromise there, right? Again, you can't have any darkness in you if you walk in the light. So what does he do? Immediately. Verse eight, he seems actually to be counteracting that. I mean, the parallelism of eight and six seem intended to counteract the idea of perfectionism. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Christopher, we, we've been talking about this a little bit. Um, on the one hand, I don't think that walking in the darkness is just the same thing as committing sin. Like, I don't think those are exact synonyms for each other. But at the same time, the parallelism ties them very closely together, right? Walking in the darkness within verse six, walking in the darkness is parallel to not practicing the truth, right? It's about what we do. It's not a vague state, right? Um, like for, I, I was suggesting, uh, Chris, one possibility of um, how to, like a safer way, uh, a friendlier way to interpret walking in the darkness um, is just to be like, to be in a state of ignorance, right? Um, like you, you've, you've, you don't know God yet, right? Or whatever. So like, if you say that you know God, but you don't really, right? You've not really encountered him or whatever, then you're lying and you're not practicing the truth. But um, it's, that's tempting. But there, but internally, if it starts to feel a little bit strained already because of the parallelism with practicing, with doing the truth. But then it gets even worse for that interpretation, I think, in verse 7, because, of course, then the correspondence, walking in darkness corresponds to not practicing the truth, um, but walking in the light corresponds to the blood of Jesus, his son, cleansing us from all sin, right? Um, so sin is involved right away there um, in parallel to not practicing the truth. So by the end of verse seven already, I'm feeling that if we're trying to separate the idea of walking in darkness entirely from sin, from our actions, from our sinful actions, I think we're fooling ourselves. I think we're leading ourselves astray <laughs> here. Uh, I, 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 it, that there is some connection between walking in the darkness and sin seems plain based on both six and seven and how that is set up. However, verse eight then comes in and offers at the least a corrective to that, right? If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So this doesn't mean that sin should be now irrelevant, right? Sin should be irrelevant. So who's he? Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? So Chris, yes, I think there's, I, I agree with you there. Walking in the dark is more active than just committing sins. 
um, you'll notice the sort of comparisons that I was making, right? Sort of inspired by if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light and anchored in verse five, God is light, right? So if God is light and there is no darkness in him, then to walk in the darkness, what you're talking about primarily is distance from God. Really, not just distance, because light can travel distances, right? Um, But obstruction, there has to be something in between you. You have to be hiding, from God. You have to be ducking down behind something and putting it between you and God, like Adam and Eve in the bushes, right? That's the only place where there is darkness, because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So in order to contrive to walk in the darkness, you gotta, you know, you you gotta work at it, right? And in order to contrive to do it, you have to, so it's, it, it does seem to be the metaphor of walking in the darkness in the context of verse five. God is light and in him is no darkness. Um, In the context of verse five, the walking in the darkness metaphor seems to be about separation from God, right? Um, You you can't be, if if you are in fellowship with him, right? If you are close to him, if you are in community with him, you're gonna be in the light. You can't walk in the darkness. And so therefore that's why you're lying if you're claiming the fellowship and yet you're walking in the darkness. You can't be running away from him and uh, walking with him at the same time. That's not possible. If you think you're doing that, you're lying to others and to yourself. Um, but, um, but, but sin is clearly involved, right? And I don't think merely as a passive consequence of that. Um, because again, and there, because of that internal verse six parallel, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. There's, the truth isn't just something that we know, right. Or see or something like that. It's something we do, right. It's something we do. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. And I agree, Christopher, even the, the having sin, um, uh, Chris says that has to be deliberate, uh, not a more active verb. Um, yeah, yeah. It's about um, holding, right? You're, you're having and holding sin, right? Um, if you say that you're not doing that, saying you have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Now, um, let's back up for a second. And consider who's he talking to and what's he saying there. If we say we have no sin, like who, who needs to hear this and how does it relate to what he's just been talking about? Well, remember he just said, and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, right? So clearly anybody who hears the promise of verse seven, if we walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Anybody whose response to that is, no, I'm good. I'm good. Don't, don't, don't trouble yourself on my account, right, uh, uh, Jesus. Um, I'm fine, right? I don't need to be cleansed from sin. The, well, if you're in that state, then you're definitely leading yourself astray, right? You're definitely deceiving yourself. Um, and of course, if we think about that, if we think about like, so like who's, who does that, right? Who, isn't that kind of weird? Like does, you know, that doesn't seem like a normal reaction, except actually it really kind of is, isn't it? 
Um, we can think about this from within the context of the gospel stories, right? You think about the Pharisees, right, um, who believed in their own holiness, right, believed that they were okay, right? Um, because of the practices that they performed and they, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they were living righteous lives, right? Um, think of the, you know, the Pharisee in the parable, right? I thank, you know, thanking God that he is not like, um, you know, that sinner over there. Um, so in the gospel, we can see illustrations of people who would presumably say in this sense that they have no sin, that they don't need cleansing, right? Um, they don't need cleansing. Um, back to what we were talking about, about purification, right? No, no, no. I've purified myself, right? I've purified myself. I'm good. I don't need cleansing, right? Um, yeah. So we do get this illustrated for us in the gospels. And I think if we think about our own contemporary situation, it's not hard to see a similar kind of situation, right? Um, not similar in the sense of it's not sort of structured, the same way, right? Um, that is, I think there are many people in our society who would say that they don't need cleansing, um, not because they are so scrupulous about their cleansing rituals that they believe themselves to be already okay, like the Pharisees, right? Um, uh, but who think that they don't have sin, right? Who do not think what they do is wrong, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Let's see. All right. All right, Patrick, hang on. I'm going to work with you here. Let's see. In the conditional statement in verse six, the if statement is subjunctive, right? And the then statement is indicative. Yes. Same pattern in verse seven. Yes. Um, in verse eight, the if statement and the then statement are both subjunctive. Wait, is it? I thought, no, wait. No, pronomen is deceive. No, this, they're, they're both indicative. This is indicative. Pronomen is indicative. If we should say, it's the saying that's subjunctive. If we should say that we don't have, the have is indicative as well, right? Because that's the thing that we are in theory saying, right? The conditional. So the subjunctive mood, one of the functions of the subjunctive mood, it's complicated, right? Um, are to suggest, um, uh, um, are to suggest uh, uh, conditional conditionality, right? So if we should, if in th theoretically, should this thing occur, right? The saying that we do not have sin, right? Um, then we deceive. So now it looks like, it looks like the verbs as they're given here are indicative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Deceive is indicative and is, is indicative here. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, but no, that's good. We're, I was looking at the pattern of subjunctive and indicative um, uh, last time as well. So we can see he does seem to be using the same structure, I think. Um, but um, yeah, Grant, I know there's a whole bunch of like ways to do different conditionals. Uh, well, I, I say, I know, I assume, cause I know there are in Latin and I assume uh, that there are in Greek as well. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. So, okay. Anyway, but we're saying like in our own society, we can certainly see lots of people who don't 
think that they have sin, right? They don't think that they need cleansing, um, you know, for like what they do and how they're walking, right? But Stephen, I agree. We do need to remember the entire context. We're not talking about non-believers here, right? Um, I don't think there's anywhere in general where um, certainly when he's using we, which he's doing all the way through these sentences, right? Um, first person plural continually, right? Um, if we say, if we walk in the light, right? If we should say that we have fellowship, if we walk in the light, um, then we have fellowship and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. If we should say, yeah, we're first person plural all the way through here, right? Um, but, um, uh, yeah. So, um, when he's using the first person plural, Stephen, I think it's important to remember he's talking about believers here, right? Um, so he's not just talking about people who are still in denial, right? He's talking about believers. So I, that statement, if we should say that we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves, we lead ourselves astray, is a plain, explicit, anti-perfectionism statement, right? And we should keep this in mind. We should keep this in mind. When it sounds like John is saying, is teaching perfectionism, is teaching that when you are saved, when you enter into koinonia, with God, when you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, then it's impossible for you to sin. And if you do sin, that's when you know that you don't actually have fellowship with God, right? Um, you thought you were a believer, but apparently you're not because you're sinning, QED, right? Verse six can kind of sound like that. Many other things that we're going to see in First John are going to kind of sound like that, right? Um, but um, yeah. Yeah, he's here. He explicitly, plainly contradicts that idea. It is a deception of ourselves if we should say that we don't have sin. But is that it then? Does he just say this in order to, as a corrective against misinterpretation? Like, does the first half of this verse at least merely translate to, don't misunderstand me, I'm not teaching the doctrine of perfectionism? Right? Um, I, I think that that is an effect. I don't think that's the only effect. On the one hand, eight is parallel to six. On the other hand, he's kind of changing the subject. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, in verse six, if we say we have no sin, not only is the structure different, right? The, I talked about the twofold and just the one straightforward statement in verse eight. It's not just that the parallelism is different. The whole sense of it is different, right? The first time he's talking about hypocrisy. If we say we're in communion with God, we're actually, you know, and yet walk in darkness, we're not, right? So we're making a, a claim. We're claiming something good about our relationship with God. I guess it actually isn't different, is it? 
Because that's what it would mean, I suppose, to say that you have no sin. Right? If you say that you have no sin, you're definitely saying that you have fellowship with God. You're saying you have a really special fellowship with God. You have a perfect fellowship with God. Oh, yes. No darkness here. Nothing to worry about. Right? If you say that, then you're deceiving yourself. So again, it sounds like if your words don't match your actions, if you say you have fellowship, but you walk in darkness, then you're lying. But if you don't, and so it sounds like a mere don't do this, right? Don't say you have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. So what's the opposite of that? Okay. Uh, no, I guess it's a, it is a restatement, right? If we say we have no sin is kind of the same thing as saying that we have fellowship with him. We do walk in the darkness. Is he saying walking in the darkness is inevitable in a sense? If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Having no sin, again, looking at the, you know, what I was talking about earlier, I think we cannot escape the clear parallelism between darkness and sin, walking in darkness and not practicing the truth and having that sin that we need to be cleansed from. Right. In verse seven, um, those things seem to be pretty clearly tied together. And so therefore the if clause of verse six seems to suggest the problem is not saying that we have fellowship with God. It's only if we're walking in darkness, then our saying that is a problem, right? But verse eight would seem to suggest we can't, right? We can't ever say that. It, it's not the same. I mean, it goes, it, I think it, it does go further, Um Stephen, as you're suggesting, saying you have no sin goes further um, than walking in darkness while claiming fellowship. Um, Yes. Yeah. Um, Maybe he's making a distinction between habit versus making errors. Um, We still sin even if our trajectory is in the right direction. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I don't want to just equate them. Like just because two things are parallel in construction doesn't mean they're identical to each other, right? So I don't want to just equate walking in darkness with having sin. That's clearly not right. Okay. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Um. Because, Devorah, I think I agree with you. Walking in the darkness in the context of verse 5, and as it's emphasized in, in verse 7, walking in the darkness and walking in the light, it's about, it's not just about sin, it's about proximity to God, right? Walking in the darkness involves 
hiding from God, separating yourself from God, not walking in the light as he is in the light, as Jesus is in the light. Um, You're not doing that. You're leaving fellowship with God. You're therefore leaving fellowship with each other. Um, And when you do that, it would also therefore seem, and the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse you from all sin, given the if-then statement there, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Um, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Granted the proximity, right? So we've dealt with the proximity issue first. If you're walking in the darkness, you don't have fellowship with God. But if you walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. But while walking in the light, you can't say that we have no sin. Is it in that sense a kind of almost a qualification? That would seem odd of the cleansing us from all sin. Because he just said, the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. And then he says, but you're lying to yourself if you say that you have no sin. But didn't Jesus just cleanse us of all of the sin, right? Um, It would seem to qualify that, which would seem to be a strange thing for him to do, right? Um, Well, let me put that on hold for now. This, I think, will be a little bit clearer when we get to verse 7, right? Or sorry, verse 9. I think we really need verse 9 to understand the full transition from verse 7 to verse 8. The relationship between the blood of Jesus, his son, cleansing us from all sin, and our saying that we have no sin. Um, I think we're going to need verse 9 to understand that. So let's hold off on that for a second. Um, The patterns that we've been perceiving are still going to be really helpful, especially as we come to lay both eight and nine together next to six and seven. Let's talk about the truth not being in us. Um, The truth is not in us. How does that differ from practicing the truth, do you think? Well, of course, the first thing that I notice is the in, right? We just had that in verse seven. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, right? So we had that preposition being used. We were in the light. Jesus is in the light, right? Um, And then the parallel between the light and the blood, right? The truth is not in us now. So it's flipped around. It was about us being in the light before, and now it's about the truth being in us. Before we were practicing the truth, the truth was a thing that we did or did not do, um, as the case may be. Um, but, um, but here, the truth is something that is in us. And of course, I cannot help but think of, of the Spirit, think of Jesus, right? That this sounds more like a person, right? It sounds more like a person than it sounds like a uh, um, 
it sounds more like a person than it sounds like a an action for sure right hmm and how is that the consequence of our leading ourselves astray the truth is not in us um Yeah, interesting. So Christopher's saying if we if we lie, we practice untruth. Right? We do not practice truth. If we have sin and don't acknowledge it, the truth is not in us. Perhaps the relationship is lie lie and practice have and to be in. Right. Right. Um Yeah. Um, the truth is not in us. The truth in both cases is being talked about as a thing that is outside of us. Right. First is, is it is a thing that we can practice, like our actions can conform to it, that external thing called the truth. But here, it's not uh, our actions measuring up to an external thing. It is that external thing becoming internal to us or, again, not doing so. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now Jesus does call himself the truth, which is one, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? The Zoe, we've already gotten earlier on in chapter one, um, the Aletheia uh, and uh, the way he's not talked about the way he's not used that word explicitly, but all of this uh, walking and wandering off is certainly making me think of the way. Um, Yes. Yes. Um, But notice here's what I can't get away from in verse eight, the more I look at it. The more I look at at it, the more ironic it feels. It feels like there's an internal tension in verse 8, doesn't there? There's an irony here. On the one hand, there's, we have sin, or the truth is in us. So there are these two states, right? One state is that the truth could be in us, and the other state is sin is in us, right? So we have sin being having sin and truth being in us, right? Those are like the two states of us that are described here. And I'm tempted to say, or it doesn't seem logical to say, right. And those two things are obviously contrary to each other, right? If sin is in us, truth can't be in us because sin and truth, come on, right? Those have to be opposite of each other. So um, if we have sin in us, 
then the truth is not in us. And if the truth is in us, then there won't be any sin in us. Doesn't that make sense? Right? Wouldn't that be awful straightforward? Wouldn't that seem to be all intuitive and everything? Except what John seems to be saying is almost the opposite of that. Right? If we say there is no sin in us, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth, so the, the truth not being in us is conditional not upon the absence of sin, right? It's not like uh, uh, we either have sin or we have truth. We only have truth if we acknowledge that we have sin, right? Um, right? Then not having truth is a direct consequence of our leading ourselves astray are deceiving ourselves. If we deceive ourselves, if we lead ourselves astray, then the truth will not be in us. And we lead ourselves astray by saying that we don't have sin. If we acknowledge that we have sin, right? Does that mean that the truth is in us? So far from, so do you see what I mean by saying it's the opposite of what I would expect it to be? I would expect him to say, Either you've got sin or you've got truth. Can't have them both, right? Sin and truth can't cohabitate. So either you've got sin in your heart or you've got truth in your heart. Choose, right? Uh, that, that, that's, that's how I might have written it, right? <laughs> it makes sense to me, but that's completely not what he says. In fact, he says this. That's why I say there seems to be an irony here, that the truth is only in us when we acknowledge that sin is, that we have sin. So not only can sin and truth cohabitate, it's almost like they must, right? That the having of truth is conditional. Not conditional on the having of sin, but conditional on the acknowledging that we have sin. Um, and that's really fascinating. And we'll have to wait and see how this connects uh, with how this connects with being cleansed from all sin. Jesus, the blood of Jesus, his son cleansing us from all sin, which sounds like it really did the job there. Right. It just it didn't just cleanse from most sin. Right. But there's still some left over that we have to acknowledge still around. Right. It's not just that. Um, yeah. Brandon, I agree. Brandon's turning this around and saying, because we have sin, we can't be truthful until we acknowledge it. Or rather, because we have sin, I think I'd say even more strongly, Brandon, the truth will not be in us until we acknowledge it. The truth is not in us, is like, is parallel to the having fellowship with him right? Walking in the light as he himself is in the light. The truth will not be in us. There's something relational there, right? Um, the truth, the aletheia, won't be in us. Because we have sin, it won't be in us if we don't acknowledge that we have sin. Um, see, Serena, I, I, I know... You were doing this last week too. You want to turn the cause and effect around, but I can't see it. It doesn't, syntactically, it does not work. 
that we can't acknowledge the sin until the truth reveals our condition to us. That's attractive. That makes sense. But I can't see, I can't interpret John's syntax in that way. Um, the ifs and thens, both here and in verse 7, work the other way around to that. If we don't acknowledge our sin, then the truth is not in us, is how the syntax of this sentence works. It's not the other way around. It's not, if the truth is in us, then we can acknowledge our sin. Um, we can own, we'll only have the truth in us if we don't say that we have no sin. Because we're, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is definitely not in us if we don't say that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, that's the if then. I just, I can't see how we can turn the if then around. I just, I really don't. I really don't. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but we'll see. We'll continue this into verse nine uh, when we get there, which of course, as you can tell, I'm pushing that back because there's no way we're going to do verse nine in five minutes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let me end by giving a small homework assignment so I don't have to ask you to tell me this spontaneously. I know that near the beginning of our discussion next week, I'm going to want to know more about the verb confess, right? So in verse nine, don't tell me now, don't tell me, save it. But, um, oops, okay, sorry. Um, having issues apparently, something. Okay, um, if we should confess, right? Homologomen. So uh, those so far Greek scholars, um, I'm going to be interested to hear about homologomen there, confess at the beginning. Um, we'll talk about that next time, but just to warn you in advance so that you can think about it and not have me sending you on spontaneous research projects uh, during the live class. Um, I'm definitely going to want to know about that. And then of course we have some other weighty words. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess, faithful, righteous, forgive, lots of big words going on. Uh, in this uh, in this next verse here, right? All right. Well, I'm going to stop here, uh, and we will um, uh, we will we will we will pick up there and read the other half of the pair. So we get six and seven, eight and nine, and then eventually moving towards ten. We're almost at the end of the chapter now. Um, uh, imagine we'll have done an entire chapter. Um, this is uh, this is challenging stuff, right? So. I humbly think that I understand verse eight less now than I did at the beginning, which is really good, which I, I'm always delighted by uh, because that means this is the path to learning, right? So uh, we will see my hope and confidence is that next time when we look at verse nine and bring that in, verse eight is going to become much clearer and how it fits into the pattern with verse six and seven is going to become much clearer as we move forward. Uh, so my own confusion and lack of understanding, this is, um, I'm in a place that is a familiar place to me. Um, this is, and I, I hope you guys are okay with the fact that I'm just like 
dramatizing my own process here because this is this is to me this is what literary study is about this is what um really wrestling with a text this is the process of really wrestling with the text um trying to study it and meditate upon it and learn from it um i always find myself in these places and um I've learned many years ago to be stubborn and persevere when I find myself confused in ways that I am finding myself right now confused, not really seeing exactly how eight fits in with six and seven. But I trust and believe that uh, we will get there. And yeah, then verse 10, I agree. Verse 10 is going to be needed to help us understand all this too. So we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll see if we can fit all this together. And then we'll look forward in a few weeks. Sometime in June, we will have um, this whole paragraph figured out right and then that'll be that'll be really good all right thank you everybody for joining me today uh you've uh, really helped uh me uh to come to this place of confusion that i'm very ha- happy about uh and i look forward to seeing you guys again next week thanks everybody bye now okay that's it for this week i'll be back with another episode soon as we continue our march through first john i'm glad you could join me godspeed